0: We are, as Deirdre mentioned, we are working through our series on mission. We've spent nine sermons so far, five ser- sermons on, on scripture, four sermons on culture, and now we're going to spend the last five sermons on strategy. So I want to use today's sermon to kind of um, draw together what we've been through and kind of set some foundations for the, for the sermons ahead. So we started out with the story of Jesus Christ, really the, the Bible is about the revelation of the person and work of jesus christ and so we saw that he he fulfilled the the law the prophets the writings he was the the main point and intent of the entire old testament so jesus came um, and he fulfilled that work god honored his promises uh, to all of humanity and to the nation of israel God is still honoring his promises and fulfilling the work of taking the message of Jesus Christ, the king who came, who saved all of humanity from Satan, sin, and death, and that message is going out to all of the nations. And so that is the work that Jesus is continuing to do through the Holy Spirit, and so the book of Acts is is the beginning story of how the Holy Spirit empowered the apostles to take the gospel from Jerusalem, where Jesus was crucified and where he was resurrected, and then the gospel to the nations. And so we have that blueprint in Scripture for us, um, but as we think about where we're at as a culture, we recognize that uh, Christendom, okay, Christendom, the, the uh, strongly... Um, Christian influenced Europe and America has been that had been that way for 1, 15 1600 years. Um, this idea of Christendom is declining, it has declined. We are in a post Christian culture. The, the some remnants remain uh, health care, its influence on government, charity, family. There's a lot of the imprints of Christianity and Western culture still present the core is gone. And the big question is, with the core gone, uh, will those remnants remain? Uh, that's the big question. But we understand that, that we are in a culture where Christianity and its influence is declining. Christians are declining in their size and in their influence. And out of these big cultural changes over the last, really you know, 100 years, Uh, Right now we're seeing the emergence of progressive Christianity, uh, which sees the movement in culture as a generally positive thing, and is aligning itself with culture. It, It holds on to some of the core aspects and truths about Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. But, but disregards a lot of the other teachings in Scripture, seeing them as oppressive. And there's a strong social justice movement in progressive Christianity. Um, but progressive Christianity, in, in many ways, has lost its distinctiveness. But in their efforts to align with culture, that's what's happened. On the other side, we have Christian nationalism, who, which doesn't see the movement away from a, a Christendom as a good thing, and would like to see what was present in uh, more uh, past decades uh, in in American history, a more um, Bible-informed, really Old Testament-informed white European culture. And so with the cultural changes, that's the reaction of Christian nationalists, uh, and they're trying to transform, bring America back to the way it was. Being blinded by several things, one, a very high degree of of arrogance and a very significant emphasis on the worship of power, of seeing government power, power through law, the way to bring about the world that they envision. Both of these do not reflect Christianity as it is revealed in Scripture as it was lived out in the early church as we read about in Acts and so coming off of, of Scripture and culture, there are really eight values, and there's a handout and uh, for those of you that are here in person, and there's a PDF online for those of you that are joining us virtually. There's really eight values that come out of this study of Scripture and study of culture. First, gospel-centered. All right, We see that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, the core elements— Uh, They are the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. We have life through the gospel. We are able to give life through the gospel. Our lives revolve around the gospel. The gospel is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to do what he did. It was the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead It is the Holy Spirit that regenerated us when we came to know Christ when we first believed in the gospel. And it is the Holy Spirit working through the gospel that continues to transform us as his people. So we see ourselves in line with this story in the book of Acts. The Spirit will go forth in power and he will make you witnesses from Jerusalem the nations we are empowered by the holy spirit to carry out the work of god we are bible founded the bible is the story of jesus christ and his people if we start to erode any aspects of the bible we are eventually going to erode the gospel we are eventually going to erode, erode our understanding of god and what he is doing in this world through jesus christ through the holy spirit and through his church We are church-grounded. I love Jonathan's words this morning. Uh, The church is the beautiful bride of Christ. It is the, the entity through which God is working to demonstrate his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and as the witness of the gospel to this world. The church, that is the... Means through which God is working, the church. He's working in us as individuals, but He's called us together into one body, the bride of Christ, the family of God, and it is us coming together in this in this unity, this unity around the gospel, this unit, the gospel breaking down all of the traditional barriers that break people apart. So the church is is the means through which God is doing his good, good work. We are service-oriented. We are service-oriented. We are able to love because Jesus first loved us. And Jesus has called us to live that life of sacrifice and service in following him. We are outward in our outlook, in our work, in our efforts. We live so that we are able to serve others. We are culture strengthening. We see that God has called us to this world. This world was created by him. Everything that we see has been created by Jesus Christ. Sin has tainted it. Sin has twisted it. But there are beautiful things in this world. We are called to be manifesting the kingdom. And so we engage and work in culture through our jobs through good works, through meeting pressing needs, all of the things that we do. We are, we are strengthening culture. We are building the kingdom. But we also recognize that in some ways we need to be counterculture. There are some things going on in our world that are not of God, that are not good. So we have to be different. And we see those things primarily in the spheres of, of money, of, of sex, and of power. Our world idolizes these things and worships these things. We are called to be different we are called to be counterculture and we are kingdom builders which means we we recognize that God is working all over this planet through millions of churches millions of Christians all over the world ministries churches and we are a part of that movement we are a part of that movement of the spirit and so we we want to participate Did it die? Okay. We'll let this go as long as it can. <laughs> All right, so uh, those are the eight values that we have as we, you know, look at Scripture and as we look at culture and the efforts that we are making You know, I, I, uh, in interacting over this last year with some of these ideas with my friends that, that don't know the Lord, um, you know, we, we, we were talking about uh, politics and Christian nationalism, and I made a comment that struck several of them. I said, you know, the, the Bible was written to a persecuted minority. And so uh, while we see our culture changing and while we see Christendom less influential— why we see the church and the Bible less influential, it's really important that we understand that the scriptures were written for us in these types of times. You know, it's, it's the scriptures assumed that we would be the persecuted minority. And so there's, there is power in that intent. There is power in, in the words of God. And so um, we should find courage in that. The spirit is still empowering us just as he was the people in the book of Acts 2,000 years ago. So as we work the mission that God has called us to, as we seek to build the kingdom in our city, in our state, and around the world, we see four fronts, okay? Four spheres of activity that we want to engage in. And these are also on this handout. The first one this is, these are works that we are all involved in. The first one, we unite people to God. We unite people to God. We, we do that through evangelism. But all of us are in the process of increasingly being united to God. The more we experience his spirit and fullness, like those prayers we read out of the New Testament, the more we are unified with God. So we are all engaged in this work of unifying people, to God. The second thing that God is doing, and that we want to be engaged in and following the Spirit, is unifying people to each other. That's what the Spirit is doing. That he is building his people into a temple, the end of, end of Ephesians chapter 2. So he's building us together as a local church. He's building other people together in other local churches, and he is pulling us to all believers together to be the temple. So we are being united with God, we are being united with each other. And then in our work together, we are called to good occupation. So God has called all of us to a work, not just paid work, all of the work that we engage in. Good occupations, good deeds to help others, and meeting pressing needs. We see those three ideas actually in the book of Titus. So we work f- to those things. And then finally, number four, we serve a movement, a, serve of, a movement of Christ in the Twin Cities and beyond. So we want to partner with other churches and ministries that are doing these same things. So those are the four fronts that we are engaged in. And in those four fronts, we have three spheres. There are individuals and households, and we have our house churches, and then there is what we are calling the organized church. And as we saw in our, our sermon that looked at the different ways that churches engage culture, we saw that, that there are some traditions that emphasize the role of the organized church and really, de-emphasize the individual and the household. And then there are traditions that emphasize the individual or the household, but really underemphasize the church. And so we want to. We, we believe the scriptures are pretty clear what those responsibilities should be for these various spheres. So I want to start off with just the organized church, the organ. So what do I mean by that? It's it's the um, the organization of the church that has a pretty specific set of responsibilities through the leaders that God has appointed to those roles. Okay, so the organized church uh, is responsible to preach and teach and exhort the gospel and the teachings and to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So Ephesians 4.11 is really a great job description for those called in this organized church sphere. We're responsible to start new churches, train leaders up for the work of the ministry in the church. They're called to oversee and shepherd the churches and the saints. We're responsible to network with other churches and ministries, and we are to ensure that needs are met within the church. You know, for example, in Titus chapter—excuse me, First Timothy chapter five—he's um, addressing widows. And the care of widows is first and foremost the responsibility of that widow's family. But if the family is not able to take care of the widow, it falls on the whole church body. Okay, So that would be an example of the, the whole church coming together has a very specific responsibility in regard to that, but only after consideration is given to the family. So those, those eight things are very clear responsibilities of the organized church. All of the other instructions that you see in Scripture throughout the New Testament, those are given to everybody. Everybody. It's a very specific set of things that the organized church has the responsibility for. All the rest is on all of our shoulders. All of our shoulders. There are instructions specific to groups of people uh, categorized by age, like older men and older women. There are instructions uh, given to specific genders, obviously, men and women, and to children. So there are groups, but other than those very specific things, all of the instructions are given for everyone. All the virtues, all the, the instructions about meeting pressing needs, helping the poor, supporting the ministry of the church, all of those instructions, they are on all of us. And most of them, if not all of them, are dependent upon close relationships, which brings us to this third structure. So there's the organized church, there's individuals and households, and now we have in, we use the form of, of house churches um, which reflects what the early church did for the first three centuries and the reason why we've organized into house churches and the reason why we don't just call them small groups or community groups we want us as a people to recognize that these small groups are really churches and we, we want to think of these small groups as the church so that when we read Scripture and when we think about how to fulfill these responsibilities that individuals and households have to the church, they see this group of 10 or 20 or sometimes 30 people. This is the f- sphere of people that I am directly responsible to in obedience to Jesus Christ. I'm going to seek to serve, and in times of weakness, I'm going to ask to be served. And it's this group of 20 or 30 people that we need to see ourselves as church members with. It's not that we don't see the larger church as members of our church family. They indeed are. But our first and immediate sphere of responsibility is this house church because we're able to establish close relationships, vulnerable relationships in that setting. When you think of church as this entity that's several hundred people, it's hard to fulfill all those instructions in Scripture. You don't really kind of know where to start. But if you're thinking about 20 or 30 people, individuals and households, you know what the needs are going to be. You know what the opportunities are. You know what the gifts are, right? And so it's, it's a little bit more natural, a little bit more organic. Some scholars will say there's the organized church and then there's the organic church, So we believe that this structure creates a more natural and organic way to fulfill the responsibilities that we all have to each other that Jesus has given to us in the New Testament. And it's also in this structure that we carry out some of the organized responsibilities, like shepherding like teaching, like exhorting, and so there's some structure to those that we're able to carry out our responsibilities, but largely it's intended to be a a strong familial setting through which we do these things. Now, there's a few things that I want to say about house churches um, as we go into this, to the next four sermons on strategy. Um, First of all, ideally, they are made up of people in households that live in somewhat close proximity just because it's easier to carry out natural relationships the, the closer you live to somebody. It's easier to serve and it's easier to be served. It's easier to, to uh, like meet the needs of neighbors. It's easier for people to see us doing things in a unified way. Now, we, we have house churches that, that have members that are widely uh, spread apart um, and so, you know, every few years there's there's a there's some need that we have to reorganize some of our house churches. And after this year of COVID, when we've kind of been meeting all online for 14 months, we've had a lot of people move in the last year or two. Some leadership families. So, some of the things that we're going to be working on over the next couple of months is is looking at where all of us are living and if we if we need to reorganize house churches to kind of fulfill that ideal. Um, again, it's just. It's an ideal, it's not a requirement that, that the families of house churches are living in close proximity with each other. The other thing I want to say is that um, we anticipate leaders to emerge in our house churches. Now, when I say leaders, I'm not talking about pastors or preachers. I'm just talking about leaders. So in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, for those of you that have the gift of leading, lead. Lead. For those of you that have the gift gift of service, serve. For those of you that have the gift of generosity, give. So there are needs that we as households and individuals and house churches identify. You don't need to wait for us as the organized church to do things, to meet needs. We expect people to identify need because we're called to meet pressing needs and to engage in those things. If it gets to the point where the need is being addressed, there is fruit that the Holy Spirit is giving, the need seems to be growing, and there's a need to involve more house churches or the whole church, and that's something that we can talk and pray about as as the Lord leads. But if you see something that you think is a need in this context of your relationships in the house church, if you're a leader, or somehow, when I say, again, leader, leaders, they see things and they do them, or they, they gather people around to do them. That's, that's what we would like to see. If you feel like you need permission, um, it, you talk with us, talk with the elder board or wherever, if you th- would like to think through some things, that's fine, but you don't, you don't need permission to meet needs, okay? You don't need permission to meet needs. So the next four sermons, we're going to hit those four fronts. How do these three structures, individuals and households, house churches, organized church, how do they practically unite people with God, unite people with each other, carry out work in terms of occupations, good deeds, and pressing needs, and serve the movement of the gospel globally? Those are, the, those, are the, those are the next four sermons, and they'll be, they'll be specific. The last 14 months, as I close here, they've really been overwhelming. COVID, we have people in our church that have been on the front lines of medical care, they're doctors or nurses. People have gotten sick from COVID. We've had some people that have been severely affected by it. We've had some folks that, that because of medical conditions or because of age, have had to really restrict their exposure to anybody else. We, we've had people in the church working in, in corrections and treatment and criminal justice system that have been on the front lines of, of the, all of the challenges that we faced as a city with the increase in crime and the riots and the unrest around the killing of George Floyd and and just all the political division. For several months, we've we've had folks in our church working on the bodies of people that have been shot and stabbed days on end. We've had inconsistent COVID restrictions coming from all sorts of government entities that has created a lot of confusion in some ways and a lot of stability in others. And I don't, I, don't, I mean, it's, it's, a lot of churches have split over COVID. It's affected a lot of churches in Acts 29. It's affected a lot of churches in this country. How do we approach all of these various different mandates and mat- it matters of conscience, and it's really hurt a lot of churches. And it's not, it's not COVID. It's not the government mandates. It's, it's our own selves. We've had, our children have been impacted severely. Some of our kids were born at the very beginning of COVID. They haven't seen anybody else outside of their family for a year kids at school, increased depression and anxiety, increased suicide rates, increased addictions. Our older kids in high school, some of their the social aspects, you know, those in middle school and high school years as they become independent and think about becoming adults, those a lot of those social experiences have really been stunted, which has increased anxiety and depression. All of us have had limited social lives, but this has been particularly uh, hard on those of us that are single, that don't have a families and kids at home, they're not going to work and things are closed. It's really been hurtful to those of us that are single in the church. There's a lot of suffering of people around the world. Anna had to just ask me, George, you, you stop telling me what's going on that you read in the news. It's just too overwhelmingly negative. And the news from India, I was really, and Jonathan really encouraged us this morning. There is an opportunity for hope in the midst of the challenge, in the, in the midst of death. And that song this morning, like Deirdre said, is just, Jesus is king. Jesus is king, and he has risen from the dead. Some of us have just adopted kind of a, an, an, a, the isolated lifestyle, and we've had families leave the church just in the midst of that. Not angry or anything, just drift away. By God's grace, you know, and many of you, many of you have strived and worked to care for your family and others and to meet needs, and last year, you know, we as a church Really made an extended effort to help our brothers and sisters in India and that network of church plants in northern India and in a lot of other ways in our neighborhoods, in our house churches, in our schools. And again, by God's grace as a church, we're pulling through. We're pulling through. There's a large degree of unity. There's people hurting, there's challenges. And we must, re- but we must remain vigilant we must remain hopeful. Let, let us not grow weary in doing good. It's, it's easy to get focused on ourselves. It's easy to draw in. It's easy to stop caring. It's easy to stop serving. And it's easy to get selfish and ungenerous. You know, so it, we're, you know, we wanted to, to, to have this series on mission to kind of bring us out of the fog and to get us refocused. But we recognize that there's just emotionally pulling ourselves to to fervent diligence is is hard. This week I had a particularly tough day. This week, um, and uh, I took the I took mass transit to the office, which I don't do very often. So I took a bus down to the Green Line in downtown Minneapolis, and then took the train to my office and. And in that opportunity, I, I, uh, I just started reading 2 Corinthians. If you want to read a letter on how Paul dealt with depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts, read 2 Corinthians. And I was reading it, and he said he was despairing of life. He wanted to die. But he reminded himself of Christ's death and resurrection and recognized that the weakness of his flesh would highlight the strength of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And and this is a familiar passage, I think, to many of us. It is to me. What what struck me this time is that he said the light momentary afflictions are actually doing the work of preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. They, They are actually the mechanism preparing for our glorification. They're not just something that we need to endure and get through. They're actually the means through which our pile of treasure and gold and glory, and whatever that's going to be in the kingdom, they're actually the mechanism that, that Jesus is using to build that glorification for us. And that's, if, if you believe that, if, if you look to the things that are unseen and not the things that are seen, That does give us courage to find joy in our trials because they're the very mechanism that, that God is using to build up glory for us. And so then he says this, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's one of those times where you'd say, amen. <laughs> amen. We would love to be with the Lord. But whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're going to spend the fall on the books of First and Second Corinthians and a large part of what those books are doing is preparing us for when Jesus returns. And we can't lose heart. Yes, we are going to have seasons of anxiety, seasons of depression, and even seasons where we are thinking about dying, because that would be better, it seems. But we should be of good courage As we think about our mission, as we think about what Jesus has called us to, as we think about meeting pressing needs, as we think about advancing this gospel in a world that's increasingly hostile and strange to us, we need to see that all these sufferings are actually building up a big pile of glory for us in the end when Jesus returns. So, Twin Cities Church, let us make it our aim to please him. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the words of the gospel and for the words of your your apostles that help us to understand the gospel in really relevant and meaningful ways. God, our our prayer is that is that you would help us to look to the things that are eternal and not to the things that are just seen. So that we could see the, the glory and the beauty and the strength of Jesus and His Spirit at work in the increasingly fading and weaknesses of our own bodies in this material world. Lord, we do long for you to return, but until you do, help us to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.